0: You're listening to Leading From Behind, the podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Center, and this is episode number 11, End of Session Feedback, Part 1. in this episode, I'll be talking briefly first about bringing the main conversation in a first session to a close, in anticipation of constructing some end-of-session feedback for the client. Then we'll begin our in-depth examination of the purpose and content of the feedback itself. Now, as mentioned in Episode 10, the message or feedback we provide to the client at the end of the session is an integral component of solution-focused therapy. As a result, we'll be spending the next few episodes looking at this subject in some detail. Now, in the closing resource segment of the podcast, I'm going to identify some additional books on solution-focused practice which illustrate how the approach can be used in very diverse circumstances. So, once again, thanks for joining me here on Leading From Behind. I hope you'll find this episode useful. As I mentioned in episode 10, asking about the next small sign of change is generally the final key task for the solution-focused therapist in a first session. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you might still have some remaining questions that arise from a place of curiosity, or a strategic question that serves to uncover more of the client's strengths, skills, or resilience. For example, as a final question in a session, I sometimes like to ask the following question. What is it that you know about yourself that tells you that it's possible to get where you'd like to be? Now, this question, which I want to be clear in attributing to either one of Vinsu Kimberg or Steve DeShazer, can be a very useful way of ending a session on a positive note, as the question often invites clients to identify some kind of inherent strength, skill, or attribute that speaks to the possibility of further change. Now, it's also a useful question with couples and families. I might ask a parent, for example, to say out loud, for the benefit of their child, what they know that underlines the belief that their child can be successful. But assuming that we have no further questions for our client, it's time to draw the conversation to a close. And of course, there's no right or wrong way to do this, but typically we want to check with the client to ensure that there's nothing else that needs to be discussed before you, as the therapist, takes a break. Now, in our ongoing case example we've been using in previous episodes, here's how I seek to end the main conversation with our client, Rachel. So, Rachel, I don't have any more questions at this point, but is there anything that we haven't talked about that was important to you, or do you think I've got a good start here? No. I think we've covered everything. Obviously, we want to be careful about inviting a longer or continued conversation with the client at this point. Most counsellors or therapists are seeing clients within a time-limited appointment, so there really isn't much room for a lengthier conversation. But generally, this is highly unlikely, since the vast majority of our clients would likely already have identified the key issues they wanted to discuss. Still, it's important to ensure that we've talked about what's most important to the client before we take the break. So, providing there's nothing else of significance to discuss, it's time to take the break and construct feedback for the client. Now again, here's how I let our client Rachel know that I intend to take the break at this point. Alrighty, that's great. So I'm just going to step out of the office for a moment to think about our discussion today. And like I mentioned at the beginning, when I come back, I'm going to take a few moments of your time to make some comments, some observations, and some suggestions. Is that okay with you? Sure, that's fine with me. Now, before we talk about the purpose and content of the message, let's focus on the break itself. First, I really want to underscore how important it is to take an actual break whether either you or the client steps out of the room for a few minutes so you can focus on constructing some useful and effective feedback for the client. Now, admittedly, there are some solution-focused therapists who don't take a break, yet still provide feedback to the client. However, from our perspective, there are several drawbacks to this. First, taking an actual break can create a sense of anticipation on the client's part, as the client is aware that we're taking the time and energy to develop feedback for them. Clients have actually told me on occasion how much they appreciate the fact that I take the time to do this. Secondly, constructing meaningful and helpful feedback for the client takes some thought and concentration. As I sometimes like to say to new practitioners, I'm just not smart enough to construct a useful message on the fly. So, taking some time to think about the message can really make a big difference. Now, let's shift our attention to the message itself. In particular, why, in solution-focused therapy, do we offer this very deliberate and direct feedback at the end of the session? Well, if you're new to the solution-focused approach, you've probably noticed that we certainly spend the majority of our time in this session asking questions. We make very few statements and rarely offer our opinion about things in a very direct way. Generally, the compliments we give our clients are indirect in nature and often come in the form of a question. As well, the identification and acknowledgement of the client's strengths, skills, and resilience are often embedded in many of our questions, rather than made explicit within the conversation. The end-of-session feedback, therefore, is an opportunity to make some very direct and strategic statements that can mobilize the client towards some continued movement toward their preferred future. As well, a good message invites the client to feel heard, understood, acknowledged, and respected. And finally, it also enables the client to walk out of the counseling environment feeling better than when they walked in. Now, in this episode, we're going to take a very general look at the content of the end-of-session feedback. In our next episode, episode 12, we'll look at this same content in a more practical way, as we examine the end-of-session feedback constructed for our client Rachel in our ongoing case example. Now, keep in mind, of course, that there are certainly variations in how solution-focused practitioners construct the message, so our description here is, again, by no means definitive. So, generally, we think of the feedback as consisting of four distinct parts. I'll identify each of these first, and then we'll look at them in a bit more detail. First, there are some direct compliments for the client. Second, some validation or normalizing of the client's concerns or struggles. Third, there's a summary or restatement of what stands out as being important to the client. And finally, something about what next, an invitation to return and potentially a suggestion of some kind. This component is rightfully located at the end of the message, while the first three don't necessarily have to be in any particular order. So let's begin by talking about compliments, And I'll start by saying that in this area, less is more. In solution-focused practice, we want to ensure that the compliments we give are meaningful and resonate with the client. One or two carefully chosen compliments will have far more impact than a lengthy list of less-considered ones. Now, as a general guideline, we like to begin our consideration of compliments by asking ourselves the following. What does this client need to hear today when it comes to a compliment? And secondly is the client likely to agree with this? In practice, our compliments often focus on the client's decision to attend therapy, their decision to change, or how they've coped, and in many cases, their good ideas about what they want for themselves. As well, compliments sometimes are centered on a particular strength, skill, or ability that might be important to recognize. However, it's also important to express this type of compliment as a process trait rather than a character trait. So, for example, we would want to say to a client something like, It's really impressive to hear how you've worked so hard to create a safe home for your children, rather than, You're a really great mother. The former notes something very specific about the client's efforts, while the latter is very broad and general, and may not, in fact, match with the client's view of herself. Now, like many aspects of solution-focused practice, it can take time to develop our skill in choosing compliments that are meaningful for the client. So, observing the client's reaction to a compliment is often a key way of knowing whether or not we fit the mark. Now, a further component of the message is validation. In our experience, this is equally as important as compliments. In fact, in some cases, it's the validation in our feedback that makes a bigger difference to the client. Now, when we talk about validation, we're simply talking about words that normalize or acknowledge the client's experience. In the face of our struggles, most of us want to know that our problems or concerns are understandable and that it makes sense to be knocked around by them. In fact, we might even say that we want to be reassured that we're not going crazy. So, during the message, we want to find ways of validating the client's experience. So, for example, if someone has struggled in the face of the loss of a relationship or a loved one, we want to be very deliberate in stating how these are often painful experiences and typically do get the best of people. Sometimes we can even validate or normalize behavior that clients have identified as unhelpful yet worthy of change. So, for example, we can highlight the idea that at some point a client may have had some good reasons for using alcohol as a way of coping even though it's very clear that it's no longer useful. The further component of the message is to summarize what stands out as important to the client. Often called a bridging statement, this is simply a way of restating the client's best hopes from the conversation and connecting this to a suggestion or encouragement regarding what's next. In some instances, we might even include some of the client's description of their preferred future or highlight some of their notable exceptions as part of this summary. Now, the subject of suggestions, or between-session tasks, is worthy of a longer discussion than we can undertake right now. So, we'll be devoting a separate future episode to a discussion of the kinds of suggestions that we might make, if any, to our clients. But at this point, we'll simply say this. Suggestions, or between-session tasks, in solution-focused therapy would generally fall into two categories. Ones that involve noticing or paying attention to something, or ones that involve doing something. It's also notable that in solution-focused practice, we would describe these tasks as suggestions or experiments, rather than homework or assignments. I would also point out at this stage that a standard suggestion or between-session task involves encouraging clients to pay attention to times when things are better, or more specific, when even small parts of what they want already happen. In particular, we would encourage our clients to notice what's different about these times or when these moments occur. So in closing our initial discussion of the end-of-session message or feedback to the client, here are a few final thoughts to consider. First, it can be very useful to include the client's language within the message. This would be unique words or phrases the client has used during the session. This tells our clients that we've been listening and that we understand their language. At the same time, it's important to avoid using therapy jargon or the language of the mental health system, unless, of course, this is the language that the client is using. Secondly, the importance of the message cannot be understated. It's the last thing the client will hear in the session, and as a result, likely what they'll remember the most. In our experience, a good end-of-session message can make up for a not-so-good session. It can also make a good session even better. But a weak message, or one that doesn't resonate with the clients can have a negative impact on what has already been a good session, or unfortunately, make a bad session even worse. For this reason, the message or feedback is something that's really worth paying attention to in developing one's skills and solution-focused practice. Now, if you've been following along with our case example in previous episodes, I'd certainly encourage you to think about the feedback you might construct or deliver to our client, Rachel. So, for example, what compliments do you think she needs to hear? What will be important to normalize, acknowledge, or validate when you consider her struggles following a miscarriage and other health concerns, and the resulting impact on her work, her relationship, and her overall well-being? And finally, what stands out as being important to her, and what suggestion, if any, would you provide to her? In part two of our look at end of session feedback, we'll return to our look at its various components. But this time, we'll apply these ideas in constructing feedback that might be useful for our client in our ongoing case example. In the resource segment of the podcast in this episode, I'm going to identify three books that serve as a great example of the diverse kinds of circumstances under which solution-focused practice can be used. If you're interested in finding out more about any of these books, you can simply follow the links in our show notes for this episode on the podcast page of our website at hbtc.ca. Now, the first book is Hope in Action, Solution-Focused Conversations About Suicide. It was written by Heather Fisk, and it was published in 2008. Solution-focused practice is sometimes viewed by others as a lightweight or hopelessly optimistic approach that's only appropriate for small or minor problems. Well, this book offers an in-depth look at how solution-focused conversations can be extremely helpful in talking with people of all ages about suicide or during other kinds of crisis situations. As the title suggests, the book looks at how solution-focused conversations can enable clients to feel heard and understood, even in these darkest moments, and how possibilities can be generated during a time of apparent hopelessness. The second book to identify is Solution-Focused Treatment of Domestic Violence Offenders, Accountability for Change. Published in 2003, this book was written by Mo Yi Lee, John Siebold, and Adriana Yukin. Traditional treatment approaches for men who have committed family violence typically show very poor outcomes. This book, however, illustrates how a solution-focused approach is used to invite men into more useful conversations about what they want in healthy relationships, while at the same time inviting responsibility and accountability for their actions. Once again, it's an example of how solution-focused practice can be utilized effectively in working with what has been commonly regarded as a challenging client population. Our final book in this episode is Signs of Safety, a solution and safety-oriented approach to child protection casework. It was written by Andrew Turnell and Steve Edwards. Published in 1999, this book brings elements of solution-focused therapy into an area of the helping professions that has struggled for years to find ways of supporting and protecting children, yet at the same time building and strengthening families. For anyone who works with families or in the area of child protection, this book serves as a clear example of how the solution-focused approach can be a respectful, responsible, and effective approach in this particular area of practice. So, we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you once again for joining me. As mentioned, in Episode 12, we'll look at constructing end-of-session feedback for our client Rachel in our ongoing case example. Now, if this episode has been useful for you, or you have any comments or questions for us, please feel free to leave a comment on the podcast page of our website at hbtc.ca, or simply send us an email to feedback at hbtc.ca. Just as a reminder, once again, new episodes of Leading From Behind are available on or about the 15th and 30th of each month. And you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes and have it delivered to your computer, tablet, or mobile device. You can find the podcast in the iTunes Store in the training subsection of the Education Podcasts. And finally, thanks once again to my colleague Debbie Van Horn for her assistance in our case example, and of course to Dano at danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under Creative Commons license. So you've been listening to episode 11 of Leading from Behind, the Solution Focused Therapy podcast. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I hope you'll join us again.